On this prequel episode, we've got our psycho fan poll follow-up. We're learning about Daphne du Maurier and previewing Don't Look Now. Hello and welcome back to This Film is at the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. We have a very full prequel episode, so we're going to get right into it, like we always do, with our patron shoutouts. We have one new patron this week at the $5 Hugo Award winning le- uh, level, and that is Valentine. I believe Valentine may have subscribed at one point. I believe you're correct. And dropped off and then re-upped. Or perhaps <clears throat> this is a different person also. No, because their show, I clicked on it and it showed their join date as like several, uh, like a year or two ago. And so I think they might have yes, dropped and then We did back, at one point so. also have, we did have a patron named Valentine at one point and so, now we do again. There we go. I think that's what's so going on. welcome back, Welcome Valentine. back. We appreciate it. And as always, we have the best of the best, our Academy Award winning patrons, and they are... Paul, Kat Ensminger, Ben Wilcox, Jeff Niederhofer, Ian from Wine Country, Ready for Spooky Season, Winchester's Forever, Kelly Napier, Gray Hightower, Eli Young's Gratch, Just Gratch, Shelby Says Black Lives and Trans Lives Matter, V. Frank, and Alina Starkov. Thank you all so very much. We appreciate you supporting us and all of that good stuff. All right, let's see what the people had to say about Psycho. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. So we have had it happen before in our fan poll follow-ups that one medium will get absolutely destroyed by the other one. Mm -hmm. But all those other instances do not hold a candle to this. Okay. So on Patreon, we had five votes for the movie, zero for the book. Mm Mm-hmm. And two voters who said they couldn't, couldn't choose. Okay. Could not choose between the book and the movie. V. Frank said, The movie is simply a classic. Have to give it to the movie here, which could arguably be one of the best movies ever made. 14th on the AFI Top 100 list. The book adds color to the Bates characters for some of the inner dialogue that is so difficult to translate to the screen. Very similar to the Hunger Games series over the summer. If you had only ever seen the movies, reading the book lends insights into Katniss that are simply missing if you just follow the screen version. Mm -hmm. But it's nowhere near enough to put the book out in front of the movie as far as which is best. And I think that's an apt comparison. Mm -hmm. Um, It's kind of like the opposite, whereas I felt like with the Hunger Games, that made the books better, Yeah, having that insight. Um, This time... I think it makes the movie... I don't think that was necessarily something that made the movie better per se, but I think that the movie is just the better of the two. It definitely makes it different. Um, Yeah, it it, for sure makes it different, but I think it is also accurate to say that the book does add like something extra there. Yeah. But I don't think that is necessarily like, I, I don't feel the absence of that in the movie the way that I did with the Hunger Games. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. It's interesting. I, it, it definitely, it also definitely takes the the movie from something that sounds like the book is potentially much more uh, about Norman Bates, mm-hmm. and the movie feels much maybe much less about Norman Bates than the book is, maybe or maybe not. I don't know. But it, but because of, I mean, I I would say the movie's 
because I mean Norman Bates doesn't show up for thirty minutes or whatever, which I guess maybe he he might not in the book. I don't know. We, well, we start with Norman in the book. Yeah, and I just it yeah I I think uh, at least in the first in this movie, uh, Norman Bates's character is much less of. I mean, there's this movie doesn't really have a protagonist. I guess is part of the thing. It's like sort of a protagonist list. <laughs> It has transferring protagonists. I feel like to me, and this is not something that I really thought to talk about in the main episode, maybe I should have. I feel like for me, the big difference is that the book is more character driven and we're really focused on the character of Norman Bates for the majority of the time. Whereas the movie to me feels more plot driven and we're focused on this situation that has come about because these different characters have ended up together. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely ends up more focused on Norman Bates, obviously after the first 40 minutes or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it's, it's definitely, yeah, it's just a little different. Over on Twitter, we had nine votes for the movie, zero for the book and two people who again could not choose. Bat Nelson, cartoonist Dracula said too close to call for me. I've always loved this film, but now having read the book, I also really enjoyed the in-depth look we get into some of the characters. Both are masterpieces in their own right. Huh. Kelly Napier said, went with the movie, similarly to last time because of the director. Hitchcock was a genius, and many of the reasons why are on full display here. The book was all right, and I did enjoy the look into Bates' inner monologue that we didn't get in the movie, but the movie still wins. Also, my husband, who watched the movie with me, declared that Marion is the true psycho of the movie because she got in the shower and turned it on instead of turning it on and letting it warm up first before getting in. Fair, that's fair. It's fair, yeah. Um, to to be fair, they may be in because aren't they're in California, aren't they? Or it's like Arizona. Arizona. I it may be warm. To where she's not letting the shower warm up. Oh, not, maybe she wants I to still a, turn a cool the shower, shower on first before. Like, yeah. I would still turn the shower on first before getting in, but you might. she might not be worried about it warming up. She might be taking a cooler That's shower, fair. which I know some people shower in hot water regardless of the... I, I adapt my shower temperature <laughs> a little bit to the... I, I think the, I, I the, normally like a warm water, but there are definitely times when I... Prefer a I mean, I don't shower. ever take like cold showers necessarily, but during the summer when it's hot, I will take cool, like yeah. relatively cool showers and I won't worry about like the water warming up or anything. I also don't particularly like the feeling of water like hitting me. So I would never turn it on and like while I was standing in the tub. You mean the initial feeling? Yeah, like yeah. the initial feeling. Because like, I was like, it's hitting you the whole well, time no, you're in the stepping, shower. Stepping into it is different. Right. Somebody see, back no, me up here. No, 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 no. I know what you're saying. I do know what you're saying. That's why yeah. I said the initial. There's but like, I've never but... liked the feeling of being like accosted by, like, I don't like being <laughs> splashed. When you, It is true. When you turn on the shower after you get in, you are accosted by you the are. shower. As opposed to you accosting like, the shower. It's, it's very aggressive. Yeah. Yeah, and you're and you're also very much uh, in less control. Like yeah. you turn it on and whatever happens happens. It, when you <laughs> when you turn it on first and then get in, you you have much more control. I can really over. I can take my time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I do generally like I almost always stick like my head like my hair my yeah. head first instead of yeah. So no, I I I get it. 
And our final comment on Twitter was from Shelby Suderman, who said, The wannabe Norman Bates is so common nowadays that it was something of a revelation to watch this movie and see both the inspiration and what this archetype looks like when it's working. I also preferred starting with Marion and not getting to Norman until she meets him in the film. Mm -hmm. For those reasons, I'm picking the movie. And I think it is true that Norman Bates has become like an, a villain archetype yes. now. Yes. Um, one thing we didn't talk about at all, and I wanted to mention it at some point here, is the sequels to this movie. Mm -hmm. There are three sequels uh, that are and I know nothing about degrees any of, them. of good. I've actually never seen any of them. Um, but I know that generally speaking, the the direct the second movie mm -hmm. is considered a fairly like underappreciated hmm. sequel in terms of like it being fairly good, um, and not not to the same quality or caliber or like you know it's not the well, the game changing yeah. film that Psycho was, but um, but like it's often like it'll show up on lists of like underrated sequels or like sequel you know like sequels sequel that people that forget doesn't about deserve yeah the kind of the like, fact that sequels and, often get and, the, and and doesn't deserve to have been forgotten in the way because most people don't even know like don't mm -hmm. even like I don't think of I forgot and I knew <laughs> and I forgot that there were sequels to these to this movie um and that star Anthony Perkins all of them have Anthony Perkins at hmm. least in some capacity and then the second the second and third one both star Anthony Perkins and the second one is is, is interesting from what I I know of the story it's about him getting out um and trying to return and, and like actually being you know cured quote unquote mm -hmm. and like um <clears throat> trying to like restart his life in the same town and whatever <laughs> uh it's, it's it sounds interesting but it's supposedly p fairly good um, but there are murders, but it, and even you're not you don't know the whole time if it is you know is Norman doing it again or is it somebody blah blah blah. It's supposedly pretty interesting, pretty good. Uh, the third one not as good, and then the fourth one also not hmm. particularly good. But um, the third one, Anthony Perkins actually directed. Interesting. So. Um, and fun fact about the second one, at least. Uh, so you mentioned how in the movie they dropped all of the sort of relationshipy feeling things uh between Lila and oh, Sam no. in the sequel they're married. Oh god. <laughs> well, then there's also I, I forget what I said, like three or four sequels to the book. Oh okay, I don't know. Well, which I, well, don't I will have say anything I don't to know. do with uh, like my understanding is they don't have anything to do with the sequels to the movie. Okay, like, that's what I was wondering. I didn't know if branches they had anything of lore. Interesting. Uh, so if you're really into psycho, there's plenty out there for yeah. you to consume. Yeah. Plenty of content. Yeah. But yeah, I would, I, from what I've heard, I would consider checking out the second one at least because it's supposed to be fairly good and fairly yeah. interesting. Um, and then there's Bates Motel, which I've never seen. Yes, but which I, I've heard I is also very good. And that's like. a prequel, essentially. Yes. It's with him when he's a child but or a teenager or whatever. But yeah. yeah, I have never seen anything of it, but I've heard it's good. So on Instagram, we had 11 votes for the movie, one vote for the book. The Leap 77 said, I don't think it would matter how good the book was. Psycho's impact on film and pop culture just can't be understated. We can talk about how great a piece of literature is, but more often than not, most people won't even bother reading it. Sorry, Katie. I kind of feel Psycho took advantage of newly formed Cold War fears and also had the scariest horror sting in history, thanks to the great Bernard Herrmann. It was no contest from the get-go. Mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't be offended if, if someone didn't want to read this book. Um, 
There, there's a handful of books that I will recommend to anyone regardless because I just think they're that yeah. good. Uh, but aside from that, I, I would really only recommend this book to you if you're really into the movie Yeah. and hadn't read it. I would probably say like, hey, you haven't read the book. You should check it out. It's pretty close to the movie. Yeah. But it dives a little bit more into Norman. Uh, another thing we didn't mention that I, I didn't know about and I found out recently or today or yesterday uh, doing research when I when I was looking at the sequel stuff um, is that uh, apparently Psycho and we did like I said we didn't mention this it was the first movie to ever feature a toilet to ever see a toilet on screen in a film okay that's like a fun fact yeah. that I both 100% believe and also find really wild and unbelievable yeah apparently it was like a, one of the it was a somewhat of a rating i don't even know if it was an unwritten rule type was of it thing just like considered like, kind just of considered rude, kind probably. of like meh yeah like supposedly yeah mm. um and that apparently uh hitchcock told like because part of the whole movie was sort of like about pushing boundaries and like figuring out you know because sure. like there's more not there's no nudity in the movie but there's more like implied nudity and and like all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and obviously the violence is, is mm -hmm. more and that you see blood and all this sort of stuff. But apparently the writer uh, Hitchcock told the writer, the writer had said something about wanting to include a toilet for the first time ever or something, or have a toilet be on screen. And, and Hitchcock basically told him, well then write it into the plot somehow. So it's like important. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's why the money is nice. as opposed to the earring, as opposed to the earring. All right. Okay. I'll allow it. <laughs> yeah. I still think an earring is more interesting, but I'll allow it for the first toilet on screen. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that was what Walt Disney found so disgusting it's about the film. Very possible. There's a toilet in it. Yeah. Jedi Ann 9 said Hitchcock plus Herman plus Perkins plus Lee equals one of the most iconic horror movies ever made. I kind of feel bad that no one really knows who Robert Block is, but his book just can't compete, even if it did come first. Yeah. I mean, it's fair. Yes. And our final comment on Instagram was from Marvel Book to Movie, who said, This was the first movie that made me fall in love with the slasher genre almost a lot, plus my first horror movie, Discounting Jaws. I enjoyed some of the most famous moments in the movie, and I'm all here for it. The book I read while on vacation last year in La Quinta was almost as good as the movie. While I did enjoy the story and mystery in the novel, the, mo the movie certainly deals a lot more better because, you know, Hitchcock. And plus, the dark witchcraft stuff that was mentioned in the book was a huge plot hole in the book, in my opinion. The movie lets go of that and sticks to the original mystery that was pretty much the best thing in the book. So the movie wins for me here. Um, you didn't mention anything about dark witchcraft stuff. So I didn't mention that because... As this person kind of alluded to, it wasn't really like anything. Okay. Like, it was a random interest that Norman Bates had. Yeah. That kind of just struck me as like a satanic panic. Kind like, oh, like look, he's weird, he's yeah. evil. He's got weird non-Christian interests. Right. Um, but he never tried to, like, do, do witchcraft anything, or anything like that. Yeah. So to me, it was like a non-element. Yeah. Like not even a plot hole, just a non-element in right. the book. Yeah. Cool. What was the final verdict? Or so, the, the final numbers, not the final, whatever. Our, our winner this time was the movie with 25 votes to the book's 
one that one person one lone then that one person who did did not leave a comment no, no comment to stick up for the book uh plus four voters who couldn't make up their minds yep that's a runaway yeah absolutely a runaway i think there's a couple that have been close but not not this one is this one is pretty it's pretty stark no yes yeah i I think the only other ones that have been close there was like maybe hunger one of the hunger games or something there was one i think the first one where it was like four votes for the movie or whatever it was a much that was a much wider gap than i was expecting and it was the princess bride uh, that we did right before the hunger games was also a pretty um and they had Big more votes slide. total. So, like, because I feel like I remember one of those where it was, like, there was, like, 50 votes for the movie and, like, four for the book. So even though the percentage, it's, you know what I yeah. mean? Like, it's slight, it's close Yeah. to the... Well, the, we didn't have... We've been doing really, really badly on Facebook. Yeah, Facebook's um, just Facebook, not recommending our stuff. No. Uh, Facebook shares only posts that I share from other pages. Yeah. I'm convinced that's all that people see. It's great. It's great. Thanks, Facebook. Really good at everything. You're great. You're really great. Even before today, we're, yeah. we're recording this on the day that Facebook has been down all day long. Yeah. Uh, but even before, like this whole, uh, the whole psycho run, we've had like no engagement on Facebook. Yeah. Anyway, that's not interesting. <laughs> <laughs> all right. It's now time to learn a little bit about Daphne du Maurier. No matter what anybody tells you, Words and ideas can change the world. Daphne du Maurier was an English author and playwright. You will likely know her best from her two most well-known works that also were adapted into Hitchcock films, and those would be Rebecca and The Birds. Mm -hmm. Du Maurier was born in 1907 to two prominent actors from a well-connected family, something that helped establish her literary career. Oh, no way. (laughs) Who'd have thunk it? Uh, Although her best-selling works were not initially taken seriously by critics, they have since earned a high reputation for narrative craft. Um, So she did have a successful career during her lifetime, mm-hmm. um, but it wasn't until later on that her work was taken seriously by like the more highbrow, yeah. like critic set and stuff. Yeah, Du Maurier was often categorized as a romantic novelist. That's romantic with a small R, not a capital mm-hmm. R. Um, a term that she didn't care for or feel was accurate, <laughs> given that her novels rarely have happy endings and often have sinister overtones and shadows of the paranormal. Um, In that sense, her works have more in common with the earlier gothic and sensational writing, a.k.a. the Penny Dreadfuls and Yellowback novels of the Victorian era. Uh In her personal life, Daphne du Maurier maintained a private and at times even reclusive nature, which worsened as her fame increased, and she rarely made appearances or gave interviews. It was a big deal Mm. if she came out to say something. Okay. After her death in 1989, writers began spreading stories about her, uh, about her alleged relationships with various people, which included actress Gertrude Lawrence, as well as her supposed attraction to Ellen Doubleday, who was the wife of her U.S. publisher. That's a whole movie in itself right there. Yes, that is a whole thing. Um, This kind of rumor that she was purported to be uh, bisexual, possibly. Mm -hmm. Um, 
sapphic in some way, mm -hmm. so to speak. And it's not really a thing that I personally like to speculate on no. about people who are dead and gone, yeah. um, their sexuality or their gender identity. I, I don't feel like that's fair because they can't <laughs> yeah. say anything about it. Right. Um, but there are the, these speculations. Um, the, the supposed relationship between her and Gertrude Lawrence has been denied by both of their children. Hmm. So... Demaria also stated in her memoirs that her father wanted a son. Being a tomboy, she wished to have been born a boy. She also wrote of having a, quote, decidedly male energy that she believed propelled her writing. Hmm. Um, and again, you know, something interesting. I think that can get a little bit rough with, like, historical examples. Because, like, I mean, maybe she does mean, like, I should have been a boy or wish right. I had been born a boy. Or maybe it's like, gee, I wish I were a man. I'd have rights. Yeah. Yeah. That's there's especially yeah, historically it is tough. To yeah. Tell it because, gets tricky because everything is so, and, and, and not that things still aren't so deeply like rooted in patriarchal society, but like, but especially, you know, uh, 50, 60, a hundred years, 200 years ago, whatever, uh, historically it's, it's, it's even greater. And so it's very common. I feel like for people to talk in those terms when mm -hmm. they might not necessarily. Right. And the other, I think the other we tricky may be thing about it through a modern lens. is that even if she did have like questions about her gender identity, I mm -hmm. doubt she would have had the language to, no, yeah, to discuss that in a, yeah. in a way that would ring true to what we're used to seeing now. Yeah. There are a handful of accusations of plagiarism against Dumarier. Wow. We love a scandal. Shortly after the novel Rebecca was published in Brazil, critic Alvaro Linz and other readers pointed out many resemblances to a 1934 novel, a sex. <laughs> a successora? A, a successora. Lots of sounds yeah. in that tripped me up. Yeah, the DSers get to work overtime on that one. Yes. Uh, by Brazilian writer Carolina Nabucco. Uh, according to Nabucco and her editor, not only the main plot, but also situations and entire dialogues had hmm. been copied. Now, I've never read either of these novels, so I cannot say myself. Dumarie did deny having copied Nabucco's book, as did her publisher, pointing out that the plot elements used in Rebecca, said to have been plagiarized, were quite common. Yeah, I'm less worried about the plot elements and more the entire dialogues part. Yeah, that would be the part. <laughs> that would, would be, be the part that interests that me. That would be more intriguing in terms of whether or not something was <laughs> plagiarized, but. Um, I did find a little bit more about that, but I am keeping it in my back pocket because I'm sure we will do Rebecca okay. at some point. Fair, yes, fair and enough. This is I not about think Rebecca. We, yeah, so. we don't need to tread that territory again. No. Additionally, author Frank Baker believed that Dumarier had plagiarized his 1936 novel, The Birds, in her 1952 short story, The did Birds. Did we talk about this? I am time? almost certain we talked this about this. Yes. Familiar. Uh, Dumarier had been working as a reader for Baker's publisher at the time he submitted the novel, mm -hmm. which is pretty sus. Uh, and I, yeah, I feel pretty confident we talked about this 
in conjunction with our episode on the birds. I don't remember for sure, but it does feel familiar. Yeah. We were doing prequels at that time. That was actually our first prequel wow. was the birds episode, but mm-hmm. we weren't doing learning things yet. Yeah. So we didn't have uh, like a whole segment. Yeah. We didn't have quite the structure part of the book fact or that something. we had. Yeah. Which I think we did book facts. Yeah. Like, I think we beginning. did. We yeah. did like fun facts. Uh, Dumarier died at age 81 in Cornwall, which had been the setting of many of her books. Uh, in her obituary, Kate Kellaway wrote, Dumarier was mistress of calculated irresolution. She did not want to put her readers' minds at rest. She wanted her riddles to persist. She wanted the novels to continue to haunt us beyond their endings. Hmm. A lovely uh, primer yes. as we move into a Daphne Dumarier. Perfect. That's a perfect lead-in as we learn now a little bit more about Don't Look Now by Daphne du Maurier. I've seen your little girl, and she was laughing. Yes, my sister's psychic. She wants you to know. I've seen her, and she wants you to know that she's happy. Christine. John, do you hear what I say? It was Christine. My daughter is dead, Laura. She does not come peeping with messages back from behind the grave. Yes. Christine is dead. Yes. She is dead. Yes. Dead, 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 dead. I did not find very many fun facts about this. Yeah. Uh, but that's okay because you have quite a few for the movie. Yeah. It's actually mine are less. Uh, I have a bunch. It's a, not a ton of fun facts so much as it is a lot about a few fun facts. But anyways. <laughs> so Don't Look Now is one of five long short stories that were published as a collection in 1971. Uh, so You're not allowed to call your short story <laughs> long. Get out of here. They're long short stories. Uh, Don't Look Now is about 50 pages in the edition that I have. Mm-hmm. And... I, I have to imagine that the other four are even longer because yeah. it's a fairly thick little book, what I've got. The collection was originally published in the UK as After Midnight and Other Stories and in the US as Don't Look Now and Other Stories. It was re-released in the UK as Don't Look Now and Other Stories right around the same yep. time as the 1973 film adaptation. That makes sense. Uh, but the original UK edition of the collection did feature cover art by Dumare's daughter, uh, Flavia Tower, hmm. which is quite the name. Heck of a name. Reviewer Margaret Miller of the New York Times' response to the collection was lukewarm. While acknowledging Dumare's popularity, she felt the book to be a collection of five uneasy pieces in which, quote, the reader is given an intriguing situation, a series of neatly planted clues, and a generous number of plot twists. So that sounds pretty par for the course for like a mystery story mm-hmm. for me but i guess she felt like it wasn't yeah, particularly it didn't creative. sound particularly negative it just sounded like a description yeah. of <laughs> just, I don't yeah know. just yeah. sounds like a diary entry for like mystery story yeah aside from the 1973 film that we'll be discussing don't look now has also been adapted as a 2001 bbc radio serial as well as a 2007 stage play hmm. interesting All right, let's now find out a little bit more about that 1973 film, Don't Look Now. What is it, Mr. Baxter? What 
What is it you fear? My, my wife was warned that, that I was in danger. As I mentioned, it's a 1973 film directed by Nicholas Reg. I didn't look up how to pronounce this guy's name. Rogue? Reg? R-O-E-G. Reg. My guess would be Rogue, but Rogue. I don't know. Nicholas Rogue, uh, who's most known for Walkabout, Bad Time slash Essential Obsession, that's one title, and The Witches. The screenplay is by Alan Scott, uh, known for The Preacher's Wife and The Witches, and Chris Bryant, Known for Once Against the Wind, Sword of Gideon, and Foreign Affairs. Never heard of any of those. Yeah, I will admit I have not heard of a lot of those. The film stars Julie Christie, Donald Sutherland, Hilary Mason, Clelia Matanya, Renato Scarpa, Leopoldo Tristi, and David Tree. I'm sure I butchered most of those names or some of those names. I'm sure you nailed David Tree, though. Yeah, David Tree I think I crushed. Uh, the film has a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes, a 96% on Metacritic, and a 7.2 out of 10 on IMDb. I could not find the actual box office numbers, but apparent, but I was able to find a comment from an executive Paramount that said it performed, quote, fairly well and had recouped most of its expenses before release from the money Paramount had paid for U.S. distribution rights because it was like a British film. Hmm. It was made by British production companies and, and initially ran in Britain, and then Paramount bought rights to to uh, to show it in the U.S. So. Interesting. But I couldn't. It didn't have like this is the box office number, yeah. so it's interesting. Don't Look Now was Rogue's uh, third film as a director, following Performance and Walkabout, which I mentioned Walkabout earlier. Uh, and originally, uh, real life couple Natalie Wood and Robert Robert Wagner uh, were suggested for the parts of Laura and John Baxter. Um, but Rogue was in, eager to cast Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland from the very beginning. They were originally both involved in other projects and couldn't do it, but then they kind of unexpectedly became available at the same time, so they were able to sign both of them. Uh, Christie actually really liked the script and was keen to work with Rogue, um, who, had, who was a cinematographer for Fahrenheit 451, Far From the Madding Crowd, and Petulia, which are three movies that she starred in. Uh, and Sutherland had also wanted to make the film, but this is really interesting. He had some reservations about the depiction of clairvoyance in the script. He thought it was handled too negatively and believed that Don't Look Now should be a, quote, more educative film and that the, quote, characters should in some way benefit from ESP and not be destroyed by it, end quote. Uh, Rogue apparently, though, was resistant to changes and issued Sutherland an ultimatum that it would go his way or he would not be in the film. So huh. I thought that was interesting. Donald Sutherland's like, apparently Donald Sutherland, big, uh, Big psychic medium fan, or used to be in the 70s. <laughs> Who knows if he still is. Uh, da, da, da. So the drowning sequence uh, that opens the story, uh, apparently filming that was partic- particularly problematic. Uh, Sharon Williams, who played Christy, became hysterical when submerged in the pond. Uh, and despite rehearsals, they had done a bunch of rehearsals in a swimming pool for shooting this, and they had all gone fine. But when she actually got in the pond for filming, uh, became hysterical and couldn't do it. Apparently a farmer on a neighboring land volunteered his daughter, who was an accomplished swimmer, 
But again, for some reason, she refused to be submersed when it came time for filming. Uh, in the end, this f- scene was ended up being filmed in a water tank using three separate actresses. So for whatever reason, they couldn't get it to work in a pond. You maybe know, the pond was just horrifying. I, maybe it was cursed. Maybe. It was a cursed pond. Well, yeah, I know I will say, though, that diving down into like a pond or a lake is far different from going True, underwater in a pool. Yeah, a pool. not the same thing. It's but. very claustrophobic feeling. Uh, yeah, I don't disagree, but yeah, no. Especially if it's like a muddy little pond. Yeah, I, I don't know what all the scene entailed in terms of like if they just needed to like flop around in the water or if it was like <laughs> you need to like go underwater. And so like I wouldn't imagine yeah. they're drowning. I wouldn't imagine they're swimming. Or, I don't know, but I don't know. I haven't seen the Guess movie. we'll yet, find so out. Uh, so the film became particularly famous for a sex scene in the film between Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland. And this caused considerable controversy before the film was released. The British tabloid newspaper, the Daily Mail, observed at the time that, quote, one, it was, quote, one of the frankest love scenes ever to be filmed and is likely to plunge lovely Julie Christie into the biggest censorship row since Last Tango in Paris, end quote. The scene was apparently unusually graphic for the time period, including a rare depiction of cunnilingus in mainstream film. Wow. Yep. I mean, that's still rare. Yeah, fairly rare. Um, I, I mean, didn't depending on mainstream movie film, had like, sex scene in it. Yes, uh, and we'll talk more about that. Um, I think I have a note about. And apparently, it has a very notable sex scene. I'm trying to remember if I have a note about the sex scene or not, but we'll get there. If I don't, I'll try to remember to say it um, or about the inclusion of a sex scene. So, Julie Christie had commented that, quote, people didn't do scenes like that in those days. Uh, and then she found it particularly difficult to film. Uh, there, quote, there were no available examples, no role models. I just went blank and uh, Nick, the director, shouted instructions. Ooh. Apparently the, yeah, that sounds terrible. That sounds um, awful. Apparently the scene, uh, they filmed it in a room, uh, like in a relatively small room with two cameras running that were very loud. Huh. So they couldn't, when it says shouting instructions from other things I read, not that it necessarily makes it better, but that they were literally like shouting over the set. Like you couldn't, and it was like I mean, a, pan, a, a little, wood paneled room. Yeah. And so like they couldn't hear anything because the cameras were so loud and it was like echoey. And so that's why they were shouting was like to shout over the sound of the cameras. But yeah. I mean, that does sound a, a little better than like he's screaming. He's not screaming like, at her. Again, that's what, it, that's a, some other thing I read, but I, who knows? Yeah. But that still all sounds like very upsetting yes. and nerve wracking. Yes. Yes. Uh, so the scene caused problems with censors on, uh, both in America and in Britain, uh, the American censor advised a rogue explicitly saying, quote, we cannot see humping. We cannot see the rise and fall between thighs End quote. <laughs> Uh, the scene's much celebrated fragmented style uh, where it plays out. And I saw actually, if you go to the Wikipedia article for this movie, there's like a 15 second shot of this sex, like hmm. video clip of the sex scene um, with some nudity in it. Uh, so the, the scene's sort of celebrated fragmented style where you jump back and forth between them having sex and them getting dressed after having sex uh, was actually the result of uh, accommodating the censors, basically. Hmm. Whereas, uh, he, uh, and Rogue said, quote, they scrutinized it and found ex- absolutely nothing they could object to. If someone goes up, you cut, and the next time you see them, they're in a different position, and then you obviously fill in the gaps for yourself, but technically speaking, there was no humping in that scene, end quote. God. Uh, in the end, apparently Rogue only cut nine frames from the sequence, and the film was awarded an R rating in the U.S. In Britain, uh, their board of film classification judged the uncut version to be tasteful, 
and integral to the plot. And a scene in which Jellystone's character can be clearly seen performing oral sex on Christie's character was permitted, uh, and it was given an X rating, an adults-only certificate. So there so. are two cuts of this, like an American cut and a British cut? No, I think they're the same cut, oh. and I believe it's just that it was given a slightly higher rating. Oh, okay. I misunderstood that. the British version. Although, I don't know. It's hard to tell. It does say uncut version, but I don't yeah. know if that means... So the U.S. version cut nine frames, which is nothing. That's a third of a second. So, like, right. I, I don't know what... Which, and I, I'm assuming whatever we'll be able to access here is probably the american version yeah anyway, i would imagine so i would yeah. think i and it sounds to me like they're very similar regardless yeah. um so apparently and it goes on even more uh the intimacy of that scene had led to rumors that uh, julie christie and donald sutherland had actually had unstimulated sex uh and those rumors had persisted for years and years and that apparently the outtakes from the scene were like people knew like they existed of them just like having sex like actually having sex on camera and then uh, Michael Dealey, who oversaw the film's UK distribution, claimed on BBC's Radio 4 uh, that Warren Beatty had flown to London and demanded that the sex scene featuring his then-girlfriend Julie Christie be cut from the film. Uh, the rumors were seemingly confirmed in 2011 by former Variety editor Peter Bart, who was a Paramount executive at the time, and in his book... Uh, infamous players, a tale of movies, the mob and sex. Bart says he was on set on the day the scene was filmed and could clearly see Sutherland's penis quote, moving in and out of Julie Christie God. end quote. Bart has, uh, also reiterated Warren Betty Beatty's discontent. I always say his name wrong. Warren Beatty, uh, discontent noting that Beatty had contacted him to complain about what he perceived, uh, to be rogues exploitation of Christie and insisted that he be allowed to help edit the film. Uh, Sutherland subsequently issued a statement, though, through his publicist stating that the claims were not true and that Bart did not witness the scene being filmed. And another film of the film's producer corroborated Sutherland's account that the sex was entirely simulated. So there you go. That's the whole ordeal of the sex scene. What an ordeal. Yeah. Jeez. It, who knows what's true and what's not there in terms of like whether or not it was simulated or not. It, it wouldn't surprise me because there was so much hubbub around the scene and like because mm -hmm. uh, you know with the censors and everything and before the movie ever came out that it's the kind of thing that stories would get started about like yes. no they oh, were actually absolutely. having sex yeah but it's also not outlandish that they maybe were just like I, who knows you know it's it's i don't know um but there you go do with that information what you will <laughs> Uh, so, uh, Italian guy, uh, Renato, who has, whose name I butchered earlier, Renato Scarpa plays Inspector Longy, doesn't speak English. He just read the lines, uh, that he'd been giving, like, um, phonetically and didn't know what they meant. And ultimately the, the director felt this added to sort of the sinister quality of his character that he's just sort of like, cause I would not think lines. that that would make him seem sinister. But I will find out. We'll find out. Uh, speaking of Daphne du Maurier, she actually wrote a letter to Nicholas Rogue after seeing the film congratulating him on making such a strong film from her story. Oh, there we go. So uh, it's very often that we get our authors being like, sucks, hate yeah. it. She was like, no, nah, good job. Author stamp of approval. Author stamp of approval. And a few critic responses. So Jay Cox for Time Magazine wrote... Quote, Don't Look Now is such a rich, complex, and subtle experience that it demands more than one viewing. Uh, meanwhile, Variety commented that, quote, uh, it's much more than a merely well-made psycho horror, or sorry, the film's visual flourishes make it, quote, a much more than merely a well-made psycho horror thriller, end quote. 
Pauline Kael for The New Yorker uh, was more reserved in her praise, considered the film to be, quote, the fanciest, most carefully assembled enigma yet put on the screen, but there that there was, quote, a distasteful clamminess about the picture. A distasteful clamminess. Yes. I love that. Uh, and then uh, finally, we got to talk about what Ebert thought. Uh, originally, Roger Ebert gave the film three stars, uh, and in his system, he goes up to four. Mm. Goes, and, but right, he does right, it right. by he does it by halves, so you can get like three and a half stars. So or this is three out of four three out of stars. four is like a, a fine score. Uh, originally, gave the film three stars, commenting that quote Rogue is or sorry that Rogue is quote a genius at filling his frame with threatening forms and compositions. But then, uh, uh, thirty years later, Ebert uh, bumped his review up. To four stars after he revisited the film saying that he had quote uh, that he had come to quote accommodation with his reservations about what he termed the quote admitted weakness of the denouement having gone through the film shot by shot he came to the conclusion that it's a masterpiece of physical filmmaking in the way the photography evokes mood and the editing underlines it with uncertainty so he upgraded his score from a good score to a perfect score essentially wow uh, upon viewing it 30 years later. Uh, the film was nominated and won a few awards, uh, no, nothing like of the huge main ones, but it won the BAFTA for Best Cinematography for Anthony B. Richmond and was nominated for the Best Actress, Best Direction, Best Editing, and Best Soundtrack, and Best Actor. Oh, and was nominated for Best Horror Film by the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films, which was it's the Academy Awards, but for genre films right. before the Academy Awards started including genre films. <laughs> um, and uh, it was also nominated for Best Picture by the Edgar Allan Poe Awards, which are apparently a thing. <laughs> or, or were a thing in the 70s. I don't know. Mm. Like, they give out, I assume that's just like horror yeah, media probably. awards of some sort. So there you go. Uh, and it's supposedly... Um, it has is had a slight resurgence and and um, renewed appreciation of it of it as a film and especially in terms of like visually what it's doing. Hmm. Um, it has been it has gone onto some lists and stuff like that that it originally didn't kind of get the same sort of. It, it was always like fairly well reviewed, like even when it came out. Um, but in in more recent years, it has been reevaluated to be um, up there with some of the better horror films of the time period. So. Interesting. Well, when you, you Googled it at the end of our psycho episode mm -hmm. and that one random reviewer said it was the scariest movie they'd ever seen. Yeah. So I'm excited. Yes. I'm excited too. I'm particularly interested to see, um, you know, kind of like visually what it looks like from, I haven't watched the trailer yet, but from what I've seen of stills and stuff upon Googling it, it it's very much feels like it's pulling on some um, Italian horror cinema mm -hmm. inspiration, which is always really interesting looking. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm excited or, uh, to, to watch it and kind of see see what it's all about, because I really I, I know vaguely now what the plot is when I Googled it, but or at least like the setup for the plot is. Mm -hmm. um, but it sounds like it'll be interesting. It sounds interesting. Anyways, where can people watch it? Well, as always, you can check with your local library. Mm -hmm. Or if you still have a local video rental store, you can check with them, mm -hmm. support them. If not, you can stream this for free through Canopy. So despite being listed on Canopy as available, when Katie logged in, she was not able to access it. It said it was not on Canopy. Uh, so we just ended up watching it on Amazon by buying it, but their uh, Pluto does have it available with ads. So, yep. I Ew. looked that up. 
Yeah. It is a library streaming service. Oh, okay. Um, you have to sign so in with a library, a library card, card or your university account. So we should sign into that. You can do it with SEMO. Our local library didn't show up. Like okay. I looked, like it said, like probably has access to more stuff anyway. Yeah. Well, no. Well, so I don't. I I think whatever's available on this site is available on this site, but in order to get into it, you have to have either a university. Okay. Uh, like I see what you're saying. Email or whatever. Yeah. Or a library card. Okay. But like it doesn't. What you have access to doesn't vary depending on what university you you know what i mean like okay, it's yeah. it's literally just this service in order to use it you have to you have, have to have a you either have to have a library card or a university okay. a, a thing so well, I, I have that yeah uh our local library wasn't on there like when i looked it up right. so i couldn't sign in with like my library card um yeah. at least it didn't show up but our university was like it said cool. sign in with your university account or yeah, whatever yeah we should sign in um, and it had lots of stuff like a lot of like classic movies and stuff and even modern stuff like ladybird was on there like it had a okay. fair amount of like interesting looking content so go check out canopy uh, i don't know if it's new or what i is the first i'd ever heard yeah, of it yeah i've never heard of it um but it sounds like if you're if you have a university account or a library um yes yeah, uh, you get free access to check the streaming it out. stuff you never know yeah uh, you can also stream this movie with ads through Pluto TV. It's Canopy with a K, by the yeah, way. Yeah, Canopy with a, a K. Yeah. Um, or you can stream it with a subscription to the Criterion channel. Mm -hmm. And if all else fails, you can rent it for around 3 to $4 through Amazon, YouTube, Vudu, Apple TV, or AMC Theaters On Demand. There you go. Those are all the places you can watch. Don't look now we'll be watching it uh we'll be watching it tomorrow actually because we're recording a little bit early because we're going out of town mm -hmm. but uh yeah uh we'll be watching it and in one week's time we'll be talking about it and until that time guys gals on binary pals everybody else keep reading books keep watching movies and, and keep, keep being, being awesome, awesome.